assets that add value to the world. People are consuming more video content than ever before. You know, the print-on-demand products that exist in the market. These creators have an economy that they can really sink their teeth into. And COVID has just poured tons of gasoline onto that momentum we already had. And so with more creators and, and more entrepreneurs, more innovators, they've got to be, whatever the product is, whatever the service is, they cannot skimp on the design and the brand, that quality of the brand. I also think, and I don't want to get on the soapbox, but I also think that because of COVID, consumers and users are overstimulated. They've got so much going on in their minds, and I think the best brands going forward. Welcome to the Jeff Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Today on the show, I'm excited to have Tyler Tolson, CEO of Danique. Tyler, thanks for doing this. Absolutely. It's an honor. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm a fan of your company, but I'm also a fan of any artist who's figured out how to be financially profitable and have an entrepreneurial venture, and you have far exceeded that. For people who don't know Danique, can you give us the overview? Sure. At Danique, we work with artists all over the world, and we print their work on notebooks, journals, sketchbooks, art prints, and some other stationary and lifestyle products. And with every product sold, part of the money goes to building schools, and part of the money goes back to artists. And so we sell those products online. We also sell those products in about 16,000 retail locations throughout North America as well. So anywhere from Target, Michaels, Staples, Urban Outfitters, Barnes and Noble. And then we also make custom notebooks for companies and brands that really love our artists give back mission. So we make a lot of custom notebooks for companies like Nike, Disney, Google, TikTok, Uber, Vans, Ruka, just some really cool forward thinking brands. And then, you know, we also offer that online as well, where a lot of artists and brands and individuals come and make custom notebooks on our website. So that's what we do. Yeah. Well, I want to give a shout out to the, the folks at Utah State University that got us connected. They're on the, the board for the Entrepreneurship Center. How, how long have you been doing that? I've been on the board up there for maybe four or five years now. So, okay. yeah, big shout out to them. They're doing huge things. I, I love seeing the, the student entrepreneurs coming out of Utah State and their business ideas and the progress they're making. It's, it's exciting. Yeah, you know, I think it's kind of cool that it's the Huntsman School because Huntsman actually was successful, not just rich. Right, and right. The Huntsman School of Business there. I, by the way, I just had Mike on the show talking about his new book. Okay, cool. Sounds so good. Sounds like the audio book will be out this, this month. Oh, about that's it. awesome. Yeah, I'll pick that up for sure. He, he's got a great track record and uh, some cool experiences. Yeah, no kidding. So I want to talk about something that I heard a lot as a kid that I know you did, which is don't be an artist, you'll never make any money. Can you talk about that? Yep. Uh, you know, I've heard that my whole life. <laughs> Don't be an artist. You'll never make a living. You won't make any money. You'll starve. And even, you know, you won't really do anything. If you're an artist, you'll just make art. You won't do any, you won't add any value to the world. And so I, I heard that all the time growing up. And even still to this day, when I tell people that ah, we make artist design notebooks, they usually will say, yeah, that's cute. You know, they, they don't really understand what we're doing. And, and that, that artist side of industry is so misunderstood. And I, I was convinced and still am that artists really have an opportunity to make incredible strides everywhere we look is a product or a service or something that was designed and created by someone. And so I, I look back at some of the early individuals who 
encouraged me as an artist. And I, I go immediately back to my third grade teacher, Mrs. Crawford. And, you know, Mrs. Crawford, when I was in her class, she was so lively, so energetic. She, she recently passed away, unfortunately, but was able to connect with her. So Mrs. Crawford, I was drawing in the back of the class. Like I always did Shaquille O'Neal, my favorite basketball player, dunking the basketball and the rim and backboard was breaking. And I probably spent the whole class period on it. And then I showed uh, you know, probably a girl at the neighboring desk. Hey, look what I drew. And Mrs. Crawford at the front of the classroom said, Tyler, what is that? Go throw it away. And I was devastated because I had spent so much time and this, this was an epic drawing for me. And so I dragged my feet to the front of the classroom and just kind of floated the paper down into the big garbage bin. And then I went back to my seat, had my head down and I was just trying to figure out, okay, how can I distract Mrs. Crawford so that she doesn't see me grab my artwork or I can grab it while we're going out to recess. And while I was plotting my strategy, I felt this tap on my shoulder and I looked up and Mrs. Crawford was kneeling down next to my desk. And she slid a piece of paper on my desk. I looked down and it was my drawing. And she said, that's too good to throw away. And, and that moment for me as a third grader to hear someone of authority and, and someone who, you know, can make or break my grades and my future to steer the conversation in a direction that most wouldn't do and to go, you know, outside of the norm and to give me my art back and say, it's too good to throw away. And so I was able to link up with her, you know, fast forward 30 years and tell her thank you for inspiring me because that that's something that I've looked back on throughout my career as someone who's thought, hey, art, art's worthwhile. And I've had multiple people throughout my career who, who have felt that. And, and I've just seen art have such an impact in the world. And I mean, with our company in general right now, working with artists all over the world and being able to fund six schools and build those six schools and see thousands of students go through those schools because some artists wanted to get together and make cool notebooks. It's, it's fun. No kidding. So one of those people in my art career is named Kathy Redfern. She was a family friend who was a successful graphic designer. And okay. my parents didn't know anything about art. You know, they, they put me in art classes and they, they would like try to encourage me as they could, but they just didn't have any reference for it. And it was, you know, we didn't have artists in the family or our little farm town in Western Canada. It just wasn't a thing. You know what I mean? Yep. And I kept going, like I would leave for the summer to go get like a hard construction job so I could make enough money to snowboard all winter and not have a job. Right. Seeds fast and gas money. And, and Kathy talked to my parents and said, you know, you will get Jeff so much farther ahead in life by putting him in a summer art program than any money he could make doing construction again. This is the year after grade 11. And uh, I got into a month long class at the Alberta High School of Fine Arts. It's like a magnet school about three hours away. Moved in with his other family and, and then just never came home and just stayed for grade 12. And I only took two of my grade 12 classes. I took art all year hmm. and uh, got me into to art school at, at Ricks College, BYU, Idaho, which sounds like a product school, but had like all these arts undergrads as teachers. Yep. And even though I dropped out to be an entrepreneur, I use that stuff constantly. And I'm like, so encouraged them. You know, we're doing all these like, great stuff investments. We're doing our tiny house adventure cabinets that you were giving mm -hmm. me advice on the other day. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm so stoked to read like the founding of Airbnb is go like, oh, all these guys went to RISD. Right. And part of the reason they ended up with such a great business is they designed the business. And they're really specific about it. We didn't just build a business. We intentionally designed an experience and 
you know, a hundred billion dollar company later, for sure. we have Airbnb, right? Exactly. So I, I want to touch on this for a second. Can you talk about where these schools are and kind of how you got your start doing that side of it? Sure. So we've got two schools in Mali, Africa, one in Guatemala, one in Ghana, one in Laos, and one in Nicaragua. So that's the six schools all spread out. And we work directly with nonprofit partners who are tied into those local communities. They're tied into the ministries of education in those countries. And, you know, they help support it, you know, for the foreseeable future. And when we were first starting the company, the thought was, oh, we'll just do this on our end. But in reality, that's, I'm sure it's possible for some, but to basically build a nonprofit while you're also building an enterprise with sales channels, it just didn't make sense. So my major professor at Utah State, he was on the board of a nonprofit called Mali Rising and they build schools in Mali, Africa. And so right away was able to connect with their whole executive team. And we just, from day one, we were generating profits and kicking it over to Mali Rising. And so that's how we do it today. We vet out those nonprofit partners and, and look for the opportunities in the areas of most need. And so we get, we get hit up every now and then as well throughout the year of new nonprofits who have, you know, libraries or schools that need to be rebuilt or that are damaged and so it, it's fun to be on that side of things, knowing that, hey, we're doing some good. Art is making an impact and to see it and be a part of it. It's it's fun. It's a dream job. Yeah. You know, it, it is less common, though, to have somebody as artistically inclined as you with also the business sets to invent a business that's doing millions and millions of dollars a year, not just a famous artist whose artwork sells, but I mean, to build entire systems and the marketing programs and all those things. And yet I can see it being such an advantage as well as well to bring that level of creativity and that level of, well, that's how they used to do it. Doesn't mean that's how we have to do it. Can you talk about ways that you feel like being an artist has has helped you, you know, grow these millions of dollars of revenue? Sure. You know, I, I, I heard it said somewhere and I say it often now in a room full of the sharpest business minds, I'm the artist, I'm the creative, but in a room full of artists and designers, I am the business mind. And so I, I'm in this weird world. And I think a part of it is just my excitement for entrepreneurship and business in general that I try to consume as much content as possible. Uh, and I'm just an active learner. And some of that active learning is in the day-to-day -day of the business. And I think the biggest switch, if artists in general, if artists who are building their own businesses and brands, if they can flip the switch of delegation, of trusting team members, then they can, they can really build some scalable businesses. It's just really challenging as an artist to be so protective of your work and your designs to what I say to my executive team is you have to let go to grow. And if you let go to grow, it will happen. And, and that's, that's a hard transition for a lot of artists. I talk to a lot of artists across the country, entrepreneurs who are trying to do that very thing. And so, you know, for me, some of the artist traits are really always looking at what could be. And I think artists are constantly creating in their minds. And for me, I have a really hard time turning that off. Just being able to see opportunities and, and creating those 
for whatever reason, my mind just fires on all cylinders constantly and is finding these unique links, these strategies and concepts that, you know, I think I'm sure other people see, but for me, that artist mind, that creative mind, and just finding time to let that create and find unique links and unique strategies and partnerships. For me, that's really been able to help us drive the business is to be able to present those ideas in a unique way to the team where if you don't set aside the time to have that creative thinking, you're going to stay in the location you currently are. And that that new development, that progress, that ideation is is key. And to me, that's that's where I, I kind of pour my artist's soul into right now because I'm, I'm not drawing unless it's, you know, the doodle game with my four kids, you know, or sketching or doing something fun with them. I, I'm not really drawing. I'm not designing. And so I have to get that excitement and passion for art and creativity through the ideas and seeing them come to life and even trusting team members to bring them to life, even though they might not do it the exact same way I do, but you've got to trust. So I'm interested in your thoughts on this because not all team members come with the same skill sets, right? Mm -hmm. And so blindly trusting isn't, isn't often a good idea. So when you think about the idea of helping your team member, like helping develop team members to the point where it's, it's smart to trust them, what, what kind of concepts or what kind of ideas do you feel like have helped you on that, you know, that balance wheel of you want to, you want to trust and not be like the, the tyrant, the only one who gets to have the good ideas. Sure. And then you don't want to over trust and let the whole business down, let everyone down by, by giving authority and responsibility to somebody who isn't qualified for it yet. Sure. You know, I think it does start on day one and anybody, pretty much anybody who comes into our business day one, I let them know even for just a few minutes, Hey, I've been doing this for almost 11 years now, but I don't know all the answers. And the reason we're hiring you is because we feel like you can help us in this area. And so we want to give you the keys to own this area of the business and make those decisions and to problem solve. And so we let them know that up at the front, you're going to be trusted. So heads up, you're going to be trusted. And then I always let them know when you have a challenge or a problem or an issue, if you come directly to me and you say, hey, Tyler, there's this issue. The first thing I'm going to say is, what do you recommend? And that's not, that's not necessarily an action item, but it, it always has them on the forefront of, okay, I have to come with a recommendation. And that's one of, that's our first core value of the business is come with solutions. And so we talk about that constantly team meetings every Monday, we rally all the troops and that's one of the core values we touch on and we're rewarding people on that. And so we talk about that constantly come with solutions. And so when you bring a problem to me, we're going to say, I'm going to say, what do you recommend? And if you don't have a solution, I might have some ideas, but I'm also going to say, hey, go ahead and think about it for a little bit and come back and let me know what your thoughts are. So whether you have the experience or the skill set at all, you're already, you're in the mind that, okay, I've got to solve problems and my leaders trust me to come up with ideas. And when you present those ideas, we may have some additional insight, but they're taking it a portion of the way. They're not taking it all the way to done. And with that type of a, you know, not a handholding, but trusting in increments, I think is key to any leadership role. Because then once they come forward with a great idea, you can say, hey, run with that. And, you know, when you get 20, 30% in, let's loop up, let's see how it's going. And you can kind of set those little milestones to check on progress. And that's where you can see, okay, this individual literally needs no handholding from me. Their ideas are better than mine. So I'm going to start asking them for recommendations on projects I'm doing. And it just builds in that way. And that's where you, I like to think about all of our employees as junior leaders. That's a cool term that I heard this year. 
everyone on our team is a junior leader and they want to be senior leaders. And so, you know, building those junior leaders into senior leaders, it takes some time, but you've always got to be trusting and encouraging them to bring forward those solutions and ideas. And if you've got to set milestones in place of, hey, run, run 50% of the way, and then let's flip up. That's how you help coach along the way and don't end up with a shipwreck with someone that might not have the skill set yet. Yeah. Well, my next question is advice on working with first. You know, in our space with the commercial real estate fund, there's there's so many great examples of especially luxury hospitality real estate that is either hired top artists or partnered with top artists. And yet there can be trepidation about like, well, are they going to be unpredictable to work with? Are they going to meet deadlines? Are they going to be a prima donna? And there are horror stories. Do you know what I mean? Like that does happen. They'll don't come from nowhere. Right. And then there's also, in my experience, a bunch of people who almost see them like a walking ATM machine of, oh man, that'll be great if we can use this artist to make money. And, and that's not a, that's probably sure. not a strong base for, yeah. for a partnership. Somebody thinks they're using somebody else. Right. I'd love to hear any of your best practices of doing business. With you know, it, sometimes there are some, some challenges. And when you talk about, uh, you know, the, the horror stories, there are horror stories on both sides where the artists and the designers are like, oh no, that's this type of a client that wants to micromanage every aspect of it. To me and what we share with our team and our art directors, it is for us, it's a, again, another portion of trust. We, we've got some core values and another one of them is above and beyond expectations where we are hoping that in any scenario, we look at what's the normal expectation. How do we go above and beyond just a little bit? And so we communicate that with our partners too. And that seems to be really helpful. That way, if they give us something that might not be where we think it should be, we can say, hey, our core value is to go above and beyond expectations. This is a great start, but we'd like to push it a little bit further. This is going to be for a big event and it's it's got to exceed expectations. So let us know what else you think might work here. And that way it's not us giving that immediate harsh feedback as the client. It's just, hey, that's our core value. That's who we are. And that helps quite a bit. Again, I, I definitely wasn't planning on touching on the the trust side of things. But if if there is an artist that you're thinking about working with, they've probably got some skill sets and experience in working on these projects. And if you like their art and their direction, do the best you can to trust them and not overly manage the, every little detail, every little color and, and, and piece, you know, I think that's the, a little bit of a give on the client side, but then as well on the artist side, the artists have to realize that they're being hired for something commercial. There's a vision behind it. And so to provide as much as possible on the sketch side so that they don't have to rework it, you know, coming up with the concepts so that it can be clear up front and just trying to have those uh, established at the beginning of, hey, I want to be a great client. And <laughs> so here's, here's some of those details and steps that we're going to take to try to be a good client. What else would make a good client in your mind? You know, asking those types of questions. Some artists might say, I want you to tell me exactly what to do. Okay, we could do that. Some artists will likely say, I like to work in this way. And so have those questions early on in, in the relationship so you understand how to work together. You know, it's funny, that level of expectation setting, yep. it's probably applicable yep. to pretty much any sure. sector. I agree. Right? Whole, wholeheartedly. I mean, I one of the things that we ask even in job interviews with our team members is, hey, if we rally our whole team in the room right here and we just ask you one question, what advice do you have for us 
for how to work with you best. Everyone usually goes, oh, I've never been asked that before. So my advice for working with me is shoot it straight or, you know, I like to brainstorm together or, and they really kind of give you the DNA of how to work with them. And I think that's an important question. And like you said, in just about any area of working with people, people have expectations coming into relationships and they like to work a certain way. So, hey, from the get-go, just tell me what those are so that I know how to work with you. Yeah, you know, I think it's great advice. And especially for folks who maybe come from a different sector or just a, a different mindset. You know, I think about artist friends of mine who quite frankly have some sure. towards capitalism and commercial anything and right. And so even, you know, like it's kind of that like cross-cultural competence. Like when you're working with people from other countries of like, mm-hmm. there's a bunch of unwritten rules that should probably be written to work together, right? If you want this partnership to last any length of period of time. So I want to go back a little earlier on in Denique's history, do you have any stories about the like the time we almost did? Yeah, like the tons, what tons of stories there. Uh, so I I was sharing a story with some friends just a week or so ago, and my wife even said, I, "I'm glad you didn't share the story with me." And I'm also glad I, I got married before I started the company. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't be married at this point. She wouldn't have found me attractive. So early on, finished up school at Utah State. We moved down to Salt Lake City. We thought that would be a a better area for us to build a business. We set up an office there. Close to the airport, more connections, business connections, contacts, a lot more opportunity to hire. And so at, at the early, early stage, I mean, we had an office right above a hookah lounge and it was technically a closet that I think we convinced the, the commercial agent to let us rent that closet that was 10 feet by 10 feet as an office space with no windows because it's in the middle of the building. So, and then we were just hustling and I was working at a bakery in Draper early in the mornings throughout the week. And then I was working for six radio stations in the evenings and on weekends to pay the bills. And then during the day I would go to my office. And so that we opened up a kiosk in the Provo town center, which is about you know, 45 minutes south of Salt Lake City. And even early on, the first year or two, having to make the rounds and driving to this job back to our office, now down to manage the kiosk. Even in that scenario, it was like, this isn't sustainable. This is, I don't, I don't think we can keep doing this, but the products kept selling. We kept selling out. So that was an encouragement. You know, fast forward a few more years, 2017, we, we did a deal with a major retailer. They have uh, 1800 stores and they wanted 12 new planner SKUs. So bound paper planner notebooks. It's got dated information inside of it. And so they selected 12 SKUs for all 1800 stores. And so the initial PO was about 300 grand to set that those products on shelves. So we produced, we shipped them out to this retailer and about ah, four to six weeks into the selling period, we got a, we got an email from the buyer and it basically listed off just about any expletive that you can say (laughs) in the English language of what is your problem? What happened here? And there was one date that was wrong. And the inside of the planner, if you open it up and you see the spread, uh, one of the pages had August and it said 14th, 15th, 15th, 17th. So we had an extra 15th in there. And this this buyer said, we've got to rip these off the shelves. And so you're going to have to pay us for lost sales. And you've got to replace the product so that we can sell, you know, the remaining of the sell cycle. So cover lost sales, destroy the product that we have in inventory to restock their SKUs and reprint them. And it was 
so stressful. I mean, at this stage, you know, we were probably doing about 2 million a year, two and a half million a year, maybe a little bit more than that. And so this was a big deal and it ended up costing us hundreds of thousands of dollars to just burn the inventory and ship them new products and to maintain the relationship. We still sell with that retailer to this day. Um, luckily we saved the relationship, but that was... I thought for sure we were going under for sure. I thought we were going under and we, we were able to ride through it and uh, keep scaling after that. So for sure, I was, I was afraid it was a rough year. No kidding. Seriously. When you think about that, the decision at that point of like, is this relationship worth saving? To me, that feels like kind of an unreasonable request. There's one typo. We agreed. There's, there's one typo in August. We felt like the same. a reasonable request here, right? And so this idea of, is this relationship worth saving? And do we eat it now having faith that this relationship will pay for itself? Or, you know, because yep. sometimes you can't unscramble scrambled eggs, right? What was going through your head at that point? Of the, do we, what it was definitely a back and forth. And it honestly took many months to early, early on, we agreed, okay, we'll reprint. But the challenge was, okay, this lost sales deal. And I, is this really that big of an issue? And so we were negotiating for a while on this. And what ended up happening was products actually never left the shelves. So they were sold through and we can see the sales report that they were still selling through at the current rate, not pulled from the shelves. And so what lost sales are we covering? And, and so we're seeing this it's live. And so in my head, I'm thinking, okay, th this, this feels very unfair and we want to maintain the relationship, but we also, we also need to have enough of a backbone to push back and say, look, we would like to stay in business. And it, that, that, that was really hard. I, I literally would come home sick because of the negotiations and the push and the challenge and the, the proving of numbers and calling out the sales data. It was, it was a really stressful time period. And at the end of it, my thoughts were, and our, our board's thoughts were, we just, we can't afford what they're trying to push. And we have clear evidence that they are still selling. And so we pushed and we knew that the relationship could be at risk for calling them out on this. But luckily they ended up agreeing and not making us cover that portion of lost sales that we had agreed to. So it's a, it's a tough balance and that happens all the time in business. And I think you, you have to look at, can we have the backbone and can we push enough to not burn a bridge, but to know that, Hey, we are legit and we are serious in our business. We are diligent and we're also respectful. You know, there's, there's no disrespect here, but there is an issue and there is a challenge and we're happy to discuss it in a fair way. And I see it all the time. Being able to pull emotion out of those scenarios is for the better. And so, <laughs> yeah, let's. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that because I, you know, I've been studying yep. the arbitrist to the, the stoic philosopher. Great stuff. Daniel Goldman, emotional intelligence, really stuff for years because I can, mm -hmm. like, I get hot. You know what I mean? I can go zero to 60 on something. I'm, I'm a, I, I'm a pretty passionate guy, right? And yet, mm -hmm. whether it's having a high level discussion with my wife. Or, you know, one of my poor kids who just broke something or, or an employee who dropped the ball and yep. our podcast didn't upload for a month and nobody knew. And we lost yep. hundreds of thousands of subscribers. Right. And like getting a hold of myself 
and and figuring out how to tamp down unhelpful negative emotions has always has always borne fruit, even though I haven't always been able to do it. I'm interested in any tips of how you get yourself to do it. How do you help honestly remove the it, it's a lot of self-talk. And, and it, it may sound weird, but I mean, when I was a kid, I had the worst temper, terrible temper. And my mom and my siblings have the funniest stories of, you know, playing hockey and I, I run into the street hockey and I run into the curb and my hockey stick jabs into my stomach and the neighborhood kid points at me and is laughing and I spit my granola bar out and throw it and it hits him in his face. My, my family talks about that, you know, 12 year old, 13 year old Tyler doing that thing. I feel terrible about that. It's a hilarious story, but that just illustrates the type of temper I had as a kid. And my, my mom, bless her heart, she put up with it. And every time she had so much patience with me and just coached me and just tried to give me all the tools. And so I've been working on it for many years. And a lot, a lot of the self-talk so what's that, is, what's that self-talk sound? okay, I'm not happy right now. And, and, and literally calling it out like, okay, this does not make me happy. Okay. How can I move forward? And it's a lot of questions like that in, in the time frame, And I have to be okay with putting off the response and saying, Hey, can I link up with you in just a little bit? Because sometimes I just have to blow off the steam and I've got to talk to myself for a while. And sometimes that lasts a day. And I, I may say, Hey, can we link up on this tomorrow? And it's me telling myself this of do not respond on this right now. There's, there's no rules. There's no textbook in human relations that says you have to respond on your knee-jerk reaction. If you, if you can get yourself to gather your thoughts and to compose yourself, especially for 24 hours, you're going to sleep on it. You're going to process a lot through your sleep and you're going to feel better about it tomorrow. And you're going to be able to handle it in a better way. And so, you know, that self-talk to prevent myself from a knee-jerk reaction is, takes a lot of strength of, okay, don't say anything. Wait. Yes, it would feel so good to say this right now. And yes, you have a great argument, but it's better. Wait. Okay. Give yourself a timeout. And, and it's, there's never a specific like set phrase, which if you can find a set phrase for yourself that helps you chill out for a minute, great. Use that phrase. Goose Fraba, I think, you know, in the anger management movie, you know, where they rub the back of their ears and, you know, thank you, Adam Sandler. But to me, it, it, it's never really a set thing. It is continuing to train myself and recognize when I'm starting to get hot or, or, you know, too much emotion is coming in. I'm an emotional guy, passionate guy. And to, to talk to myself and, and help reel myself in, it is still a challenge, but uh, I've definitely gotten better at it over the years. Well, I'm going to plagiarize yeah. you now. I like that. Hey, can we, can we connect about this later? Or Hey, can we connect about this tomorrow? It's, it really is the I'm best thing. Plagiarize. I like with clients, customers, you know, there are things where, you know, investors, whoever, I mean, people might put you on the spot and you might get really uncomfortable or you really want to push back. And you can always say, hey, that's a great question. Or I understand your concern. Let me link up with my team and get back to you tomorrow. Let, let me let me follow up with you on that tomorrow. It's it, it not to kick the can down the road, but to actually do it in a professional way where you might not be able to respond on something professionally at the moment. And a lot of times that's what gets people in these tough, challenging, toxic relationships, even where they're encouraging each other to be in the mindset of, 
Hey, this person's always knee jerk. This, this person responds, this per person pushes my buttons. Well, if, if you actually took time to compose thoughts and, and to try to approach it in a different way, you're, you're going to perform so much better and you're going to have better relationships. But you're also doing them a favor, right? Because a lot of, a lot of times there's a lot of For sure. emotions or unhelpful emotions going on at their end as well, right? Giving them the time to wear that, that pressure sure. cortisol, the flesh through the bloodstream. Yep. Right. You're helping them be them that they're that self. Okay. My next question, we talked about this, I think, when we met the first day. The Shark Tank night. Yeah. Uh, yep. The I don't know, Shark Tank thing afterwards. Talking about this idea of, you know, notebooks. Like yep. you know there's smartphones, right? And you guys are getting into notebooks, right? And so to me, like to be able to make millions of dollars in any business shows that you are, you're killing the mm -hmm. odds, you know, so even though there's a lot of businesses that do millions right. as a percentage, you know, most businesses right. don't, most businesses are like three employees. Like you look at six and a half million businesses in the country. Right. But then you did that with art right. and with analog notebooks in the age of a million digital solutions to everything. Um, personally, I actually see some genius in it of, Hey, everybody knows this is the answer. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? That's going to be a crowded space. Right. And so having the guts to be in a black sheet and go away from the crowd, it's trickier. It's harder. But like Warren Buffett or, you know, his followers like Bruce Flatt, he's a big Warren Buffett guy, manages $600 billion at Brookfield. And he actually put posters up in their offices. Mm -hmm. It's all these white sheep going this way, falling off a cliff and one black sheep going this way saying, excuse me. Right. To like remind his people of this. But can you talk about the advantages of trusting your own gut, of trusting your own gut and Secondarily, how do you decide between everyone saying this, maybe they have something to listen to, and everyone saying this, they just don't see what I see and I need to trust my gut. Yeah. So, so I kind of that that balance. I just think back on people saying, You're crazy. Notebooks? Like this is why would you want to do notebooks? Notebooks have been around forever. And part of me was thinking, that's exactly why I want to do it. Because it's a product that lives and exists and people use it day in and day out. And it's also a low tech item. And so I don't need a ton of capital. I don't need a ton of investment. I don't need a ton of know-how. I could pursue this route. It's a low-tech item, which since then we've infused a ton of technology into it to, you know, be running millions of units through print-on-demand capacities and tie into other websites, et cetera. So we've pushed the tech forward to help us scale. But the, the core, it's a really unsexy product. It's a notebook. And in my mind, I, I've always been that artist, creative, designer, always had the appreciation for great products and brands. And to me, I think one of the, the greatest competitive advantages in the world is the power of brand, the power of messaging and quality and consistency. And, and so I also believe that we live in this scrolling society. I've got my device and I can scroll, right? And every single company out there is thinking about, well, how do I stop the scroll? They might not say it like that, but they want to add value to the consumer's life so that they stop the scroll, right? And so to me, the number one thing that stops that scroll is that creative content, whether it's, it's a photo or a video, the art, the design, that quality is what stops the scroll. And if your brand has that, then your brand is going to stop the scroll. 
it doesn't matter what your product is. And so to me, I'm a big believer of that power of brand, especially in today's society. You know, COVID has just injected this mentality into society of this creative economy where there's so many tools and resources for these creators to create products, to create content, and to create assets that add value to the world. People are consuming more video content than ever before. You know, the print-on-demand products that exist in the market, these creators have an economy that they can really sink their teeth into. And COVID has just poured tons of gasoline onto that momentum we already had. And so with more creators and and more entrepreneurs, more innovators, they've got to be, whatever the product is, whatever the service is, they cannot skimp on the design and the brand, that quality of the brand. I also think, and I don't want to get on a soapbox, but I also think that because of COVID, consumers and users are overstimulated. They've got so much going on in their minds. And I think the best brands going forward at least for the foreseeable future, are going to be the brands that hone in on specific products and brand elements that are really focused. You know, I saw a brand the other day, they're just doing puzzles, just these rad vintage puzzles. And everything about their content, their assets, their website is, it's like the stranger things of puzzles. These guys are doing such a great job. It, it, it appeals to my age group of, you know, back in the eighties, this vibe and they're killing it, but they're just doing these cool vintage vibe puzzles. And you know exactly what you're going to get by going there. Their quality, their content is incredible. They're not looking to add 10 million products. They're looking to add and do exactly what they do really well and give you that simple messaging so that you're not overstimulated. And so whether you have a low-tech product like notebooks or a high-tech service, I am under the belief that your design has to be very simple and really high quality. You've got to stop the scroll and you've just got to have an easy message. And that's the way you gain traction. And that's, that's what we did with notebooks is our notebooks build schools. They're designed by artists all over the world and they build schools. And that was just the simple messaging that we just shared over and over and over and over again. And no one was doing anything like that. No, no messaging or no purpose behind the notebook like that. So that's exciting. You know, correct me here, but I feel a little bit what I'm hearing in that answer is restraint. Yes. Like the restraint from doing everything, like doing less but better, you know, and think about what an advantage there is in being the number one of anything. Like being the number one pays so much better than number two. Right. Like number two may as well be number 30. For sure. Right? And then number three may as well be number 300, you know, right? So I like that kind of, I don't know, I hear kind of like the patience, the discipline to have restraint and completely yep. nail it on something instead of just do a bunch. Right? I was going to say, that's hard uh, to do. I, I mean, we had, we had three years like, in business where we, we were growing really quickly. We brought on investors in 2014 and we started scaling quickly, doubling, 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 tripling. And then we got to this point where we plateaued for three years. And the main reason for that plateau is we were trying to do too much. We were, we were doing awesome notebooks, but we really opened up the floodgates to some of our partners, whether that was a retailer or a brand or, you know, our B2B uh, team was, hey, yeah, we do notebooks. And so whatever you want, we'll make it happen. And we had random requests for all these frills and bells and whistles of things that aren't in our core competency. And we would chase them because it was a deal. 
And what happened was our bandwidth actually was capped and we couldn't onboard any more customers because we were focused on just making the deals happen. And then in 2019, we said, no, here's our core. And then boom, we started doubling again. And so it's <laughs> just the, the simple task. And I say simple because it's not complex, but simple in execution is a different story. Sometimes it's really hard to execute and do that and commit to it. But saying no to shiny objects and saying, here's what we do really well. We're going to find the customers that want this. That's hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Well, I kind of want to go back to this, this, maybe ask my same question a little different. When you think about leading the organization and you come up against those decisions mm -hmm. where people aren't agreeing with you and you've got this choice to ask yourself, is there something I'm not seeing here and I shouldn't be so bold? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or is there something they're not seeing here and I should be bold? How, how do you now? Yeah, that? I, I, again, it's, it's trying to pull the emotion out of that as much as possible and asking myself, does this make or break the business? And if it's a scenario where it's not like do or die or make or break, or we're going to lose this customer, this major customer, if we do it wrong or whatever it is, if it's not make or break nine times out of 10, I'm going to, I'm going to let the team execute the way they think is best. And as far as the vision and the future of the company and where we're headed, that's my job to be steering the high level. And so that's where I play the most passionate. Does, you know, this decision might not be exactly what I think, but does it still help us maintain that direction that we're headed? Yes. I might do it a little bit differently, but that's okay. And so asking that question of, is this do or die? Like, is this make or break? And if it is make or break, that's where the passion will, will, will turn up. And again, if I feel like I might be right in a situation, usually it's trusting the team and I'll give strong insight and recommendations. And if it's not make or break, I'm not going to pull the executive hammer out and say, Hey guys, I love all of you, but we're going to go this way. We're going to do this thing. So that, that's, that's really where I draw the line is, is it do or die? Is it make or break? And that's, that's, if it's not, yeah. I've hired awesome people. We've hired an incredible team to make decisions and to go and they feel it's right. So I'm going to let them go. Yeah, that's great. I know we got to, we're, we're wrapping up here time. I would love if you could tell us. Sure. One or two uh, stories. So school in Guatemala, going down to the school in Guatemala. We flew down there and, and this was my first school visit. And so I didn't really know what to expect. The school had already been built. We weren't able to make it down to the build process. And so we linked up with our nonprofit in Guatemala City. And it was like a three-hour trek out to the school. And they told us all along the way to this school that the area that they live in, these people speak Kechi. And so they, they don't even speak Spanish. So they speak this ancient Mayan dialect of Kechi. And so as far as like interacting with Guatemala as a whole, they have to learn Spanish first. And then they also learn English. And so we were blown away by this inside. We didn't know that. And so we show up to this school and to, to have the building there and to even see the bathroom, the latrine where they, they cared so much about it. And the fact that they now had, you know, they had soap in this latrine, you know, they lock the doors at night because they don't want anyone to go in and take their soap. Yeah, it's, they cared about every single detail and it was just cherished. And so as we pulled up, I don't, honestly, I don't know how long they had been standing there, but the whole village was lined up from the little dirt road all the way to the school. And to pull up to that and see that scene and them waving and to walk out and have these kiddos run up. And everyone kept saying the same thing, the same thing over and over. 
And the interpreter finally came up and I was like, what are they saying? And he said, they're saying, thank you for making our dreams come true. And to me, to just hear that of we, we've helped you build a building and to see that that has helped you as a community appreciate this so much. Your dreams are coming true. It, it just put a whole new perspective on life for me. Just a highlight of my career, hearing them say, thank you for making our dreams come true. Flips a perspective on what we have here in the States. And so the other quick story on the schools is for the first three and a half years, we did the sales pitch thousands of times every single day to people in person at kiosks, farmers markets, art events in Vegas or LA or New York, just doing that same pitch every single day of art, making a difference, helping to build schools, helping artists, and just constantly day in and day out. And finally in 2013, we funded that first school and we were pumped about it, celebrated, but we kept hitting, kept hustling. And then we got notification that the school was built and we we're like, oh my gosh, it's built. It's amazing. So we threw it out on social media, got back to work like, man, this is awesome. And then later that day, I got a phone call from my mom and I was like, why is my mom calling me? So I answered it and she, she was actually in tears and couldn't even speak. And I, I'm scared for a second. I said, mom, mom, what, what's wrong? <laughs> and she sniffled for a minute and then said, I'm just so proud of you and your team that you actually did it. You built a school. And in that moment, just the flood of emotion that came over me, tears of joy, I, the actualization, the realization of, man, these scrappy college artists came together and working with these artists in different parts of the world came together, selling random notebooks, have built a school. And the impact that that's going to have, it was pretty powerful. So there's a couple of stories for you of, of the school build process that have impacted me. Yeah, that's so fun. You know, we're doing a mini series on the show with the hey. founder of an investment fund called cool. Return on Character, James Dan Cooper. He's this great guy. And the, the whole ETF is about investing in CEOs with really high character. Mm. They've got all this data, how much more money that can make. Anyways, so we're, but his mentor is this guy, though, my business partner, Lindsay Hadley, is her mentor as well. It was Joe Ritchie, self-made billionaire guy. And I was watching this video of him. He unfortunately passed away earlier this year and talks about this idea. So people use this cliche all the time that sure. it's better to give than to receive. Right. And he says, but people don't pause on that enough. He's like, sure. His point was kind of like, I could buy anything I want. Right. He's like, yep. like it genuinely feels better to get. Like it's, this isn't like a cliche. This is like a nicety. Like it's actually more fun. And every one yep. of us, when we've got to do that, we've experienced that. And then I think about myself, like, then why do I go home and think about fancy stuff I could buy? When like, I know I've experienced that that actually isn't yep. like the best yep. feelings I've had buying more junk. Right. Even if it's not jolly, even if it's really nice stuff, it still doesn't, it doesn't feel as good as helping, as giving, as whatever. So I love when I get to meet people like you that remind me like, oh yeah, those are some of the best things you've ever done. Jeff. Yep. Why, yep. why are you doing uh, that? Absolutely. I, uh, oh, thank you. In, in my current role and, and some of the, the groups that I work with, I actually, and if it's cool with you, I throw out my calendar, my Calendly link. So calendly.com slash Tyler Tolson. If there are entrepreneurs, students, artists who want to link up with me, schedule a 30 minute session. I would not be where I am today if it wasn't for mentors giving me 30 minutes of their time. So I I'm throwing that out. Welcome to put it in the show notes. I can send you the exact link, but calendly.com slash Tyler Tolson. If I can help just uh, jump on there. Let's link up. Let's I love it. Super generous of you. Yes, folks. I've already taken Tyler up on that. Hundred advice for our artistic <laughs> adventure cabinets for actually sports people. Uh, yeah, good advice.
advice. So I recommend it. Kind of where are the best places for people to. Sure. Uh, Danique.com. B-E-N-I-K. That's, that's our site where we've got all the cool stuff coming out. All the great artists that we're working with and at shop Danique. S-H-O-P-D-E-N-I-K on all platforms is where you'll see all the cool stuff that we're working on. And again, jump on my calendar if you want to link up with me personally. That's great. Well, thanks again for making time for this. Okay. Talk soon. Bye, everyone.